We continue our sermon series, Windows into Christ's Birth, and today the window we peer through is the one in the Gospel according to Matthew. Today we read about a surprise encountered by Joseph in a dream. Listen to the dream and how Joseph responds to the dream from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to dis expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her at his wife, as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. May God bless this reading to our understanding. My water broke about 11 p.m. Wake up, Dave. We need to go to the hospital. The baby is coming. 27 years ago this week, it happened, and it was a holy disruption. Our 15-year-old son, Kyle, was on the internet. This was in the olden days, in the days of dial-up internet. Kyle, get off the internet so we can call the hospital and say that we're coming. About that time, our oldest, Carmen, came home from college at Mizzou, and on Connor's birthday, we often retell the story of his birth by telling about this one particular moment, the moment when Dave and I got in the car, put the car in reverse, and were just about to back away from the house when we looked up, and there are Carmen and Kyle in the middle of the night, standing on the front porch of our home, jumping up and down and cheering as if we were going to a football match, not to a delivery. I think that the reason this particular memory stands out in my mind when I remember our son's birth is this. It's the moment when I realized we were becoming a blended family. Before we ever saw Connor's face or held him in our arms, we knew that our family loved him, wanted him, accepted him. Some of you know blended families can be a challenge, especially when the kids are decades apart in age. They each bring their own different stories, their own different backgrounds into the family. Why is it that Matthew picks the particular details of the story that he chooses in order to tell us about the birth of Jesus? Why are the scenes that Matthew picks unique and completely different from the ones that Luke selects to tell us about the birth of Jesus. 
Matthew begins in the passage before what I just read. He begins with a story of Jesus's long family tree. You can thank me afterwards for not reading all of those verses to you, but you could read it when you get home because you see, Matthew knows that he himself, as he writes the gospel, is a member of a blended family. Matthew comes from a long line of Jewish people, but Matthew is part of this new emerging Christian family, a teacher in the Christian family. He is a part of a blended family. And Matthew wants us to see that the love of God that had been alive for 42 generations leading up to Jesus, from Abraham to David to Jacob, that all of those characters were part of the same human family, the same love of God that unfolded in the lives of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Now, Joseph experiences a major disruption in his life. He and Mary are already engaged, but in the ancient days, folks didn't get engaged at a nice restaurant on the plaza or at the top of the Liberty Memorial. No, engagement was something that happened between two families in the presence of their lawyers. It was a legal contract. So this may have already taken place back when Mary and Joseph were still in junior high. And suddenly, as the day of the wedding approaches, Joseph learns Mary is expecting. As Joseph sleeps, Joseph has a dream. In the dream, an angel speaks to him and tells him that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not so much a biological fact about DNA. It's not one of those 23andMe revelations. It's more a sign that God's Spirit is moving in the midst of Joseph's own family. Joseph is guided by God's Spirit to then adopt Jesus as his own child and raise him as a part of that holy lineage and become a carpenter's son. Matthew tells us that Joseph was in good company when he made this decision. Because Matthew tells us that there were 14 generations, and then 14 generations, and then 14 generations, and then Jesus was born. And again, you can go read all those names and tell, call me with your pronunciations when you figure them all out. Each generation is listed by the name of the Father except there are four women listed, Ruth, Bathsheba, Tamar, and Rahab. All of them were, oops, baby stories. All of them were anomalies. Ruth was not Jewish. Bathsheba was not married to David, but to someone else when the conception occurred. Tamar's husband was dead when she conceived. And Rahab, we are told in the scriptures, was a harlot. The perfect lineage of Jesus is filled with holy disruptions along the way. The question that Matthew and his contemporaries are wrestling with in the first century as Matthew writes this gospel is, 
Is what God did in the lives of those many generations throughout the First Testament of our scripture still happening in their community in the time of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem? Unique to Matthew's story, not found in Luke or the other Gospels, is the presence of dreams. God continues to disrupt Joseph's sleep with giving him dreams so that Joseph can guide his family to safety. Flee to Egypt, he learns in a dream, to avoid Herod's violence. And then later, the dream comes again. Joseph, psst, the coast is clear. You may take Jesus and Mary back to your home in Nazareth. This echoes the Old Testament story of another character named Joseph who was a dreamer, who interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, warning them of famine, and who saved his own family by fleeing also to Egypt to escape the impending disaster in, in the land. So Joseph discovers that the interruption in his life is more than just some kind of annoying thing to deal with. It's a holy disruption. God appears to Joseph in the dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. By telling us the birth story from the vantage point of Joseph, the Gospel of Matthew shows us that this God they have worshipped for generations is still engaged with the world today, that ordinary life, real human life, is still guided by God's deep desire to save all of God's people. But here's the shocking part of the story to me. Joseph listens to the dream. He listens to the voice of God in the dream. Now, Joseph could have woken up, stretched, and yawned, and said, I just had the weirdest dream. But instead, Joseph's whole life course is altered as he does what God has instructed him to do instead of what he had planned to do. Matthew proclaims that the God who disrupted and saved life in the First Testament in all of their holy scriptures did that again in the lives of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But what about today? Is the Christmas pageant simply an artifact of the past? You know, something that we place on the mantle at Granny's house and it's really pretty. Or is what God did in the lives of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the time of Bethlehem, in the town of Bethlehem, is that kind of holy energy still erupting in our lives, in our community, in our time? Sometimes I can't tell. I'm not sure. Sometimes it seems like the spirit that conceived new life in Scripture has gone missing, is dormant. This afternoon, walk through the halls of the oncology unit at Children's Mercy Hospital, you will see the little red wagons in the hallway where they put the children to carry them over to the chemotherapy. And you might wonder, is God still conceiving? 
visit a bombed out city in Ukraine or a refugee camp in Ukraine's bordering nations, and you can't help but wonder if God has ceased to interrupt the violence and the hatred in this world. My friend told me just a week or so ago that after she got her property tax bill and paid both her car tax and her house tax, there would be no money left for anyone in the family to receive Christmas gifts or even walk through Kansas City's nicer neighborhoods and peek into the homes where there is plenty of money for gifts and plenty of money for food, but there is a numbness bordering on depression that has overtaken the residents of that home, and God's energy, God's spirit, seems absent. Does the Holy Spirit still have the capacity to conceive new life in us? Or is it possible that the Holy Spirit is conceiving, but you and I have ceased to pay attention? This fall, I read a novel called The Island of Missing Trees. It was about a teenage girl named Ada growing up in London. Over Christmas break, all Ada wants to do is lock herself into her bedroom to avoid her family and to stay away from her friends, those who have taunted her in the last days of December in the classroom. She never wants to go back to that school again. But over Christmas break, Ada's aunt shows up from Greece, and Ada's aunt begins telling Ada the stories of her ancestors, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, her grandparents, her great-grandparents, stories of her mother's upbringing. And these are stories Ada had always wanted to know, but her father refused to tell her anything about the family history back in Greece, he would say to her, your life began in London, this is your home, you don't need to know any of that, you have a fresh start, do whatever you want. But Ada's aunt tells her the stories of her ancestors, and she begins to listen to these stories, and as she hears about them, she begins to see herself differently. She begins to resonate with them and to realize that her sorrow, her longing, is part of a long family story. She begins to connect with the stories, and Ada's father also retreats to his room. He spends all his waking hours doing his work. He's a research scientist. He studies plant life and animal life. He's writing new papers, breakthrough papers about biology and plant life. And he has taught his daughter about the miraculous pattern of the migration of butterflies. He has taught her how one butterfly never makes it the entire migration route, but some scientists believe that it's possible that one butterfly plans the moves that will be made beyond that butterfly's lifespan. One day, in absolute frustration, Ada looks at her father and she says, you don't mind believing that butterflies inherit migration patterns from their ancestors. But when it comes to your own family, you don't think it's possible. Once Ada learns her own family stories, she begins to come back to life. And after Christmas break, she boldly and courageously, confidently marches back into her school. Something has shifted inside Ada's soul. I found the novel to be deeply mystical. It raised for me the same question I hear raised in the Gospel of Matthew. 
can we be shaped by a spirit larger than ourselves, some unseen powerful force? Might God still be conceiving and we aren't listening? Even those who call ourselves Christians sometimes behave in such a way that it seems God is no longer conceiving. Is it possible that the Spirit of God still works in human history, but we tune God out? Five years ago, Dr. Mike Graves and I had lunch with the leaders of Swope Parkway United Christian Church. We discussed a possible partnership between our two congregations since we are only located three and a half miles apart from one another, though we are separated by that silly old line our city calls truce. The conversation that day was cordial, but lifeless. I left feeling frustrated. I wondered, what could I do as a white pastor to bring about racial harmony in Kansas City, a city that remains divided? My friend Mary Lou is a member of that congregation and also one of its volunteer pastors. And so Mary Lou and I began having lunch. We hosted a black white women's group. We planned a human rights trip to Alabama. We had a dialogue sermon here in the sanctuary and we got a book group off the ground where members of our two congregations would get acquainted. It was all good, but honestly, there was no real spark that emerged between the two churches. And I continued to feel frustrated and hopeless. But when our church members from Country Club Christian Church and their church members from Swope Parkway United Christian Church began to get acquainted, something shifted. One of our members came to me and said, do you know that Swope's building is so damaged and so expensive to repair that they can't worship there any longer? Not long after that, their pastor Rodney called me. I said, I heard your building is in bad shape and you're gonna need to find a place to worship. How can we help? He said, well, what ideas do you have? I heard you had ideas. I said, I don't really know. Do you want to meet in our chapel, or do you want us to help you find a building to rent or to renovate? Maybe help find some people to renovate yours. He said, I'd like to try meeting your chapel for a little while, if that's okay. And when I hung up the phone, I felt the spirit move. I felt the ground shift. After Swope met in our chapel for several months, one of our members came to me and she said, why don't we meet together with Swope for two Sundays in our sanctuary? Rodney could preach one week and you could preach one week and maybe we could find some common ground. Maybe we could learn something from each other. Many of you were here on those two Sundays in November. I don't know if you could tell, but I was nervous. We like to sing classical Beethoven, and they like to sing jazzy gospel. We like to sit quietly and ponder during the sermon, and they like to clap and shout during the sermon. 
We like to start on time, and they like to start when they're good and ready to start. And I wondered, in the midst of all of that, if we would actually be able to worship together. In our attempts to not step on one another's toes, would we just simply snuff out the Spirit? But then the day came, and when I stood up here and I looked out, and I saw these pews filled with black and white faces, and this choir loft filled with black and white choir members, and the elders and the deacons and the readers, black and white, serving God together. I knew what I was seeing was the kingdom of God here on earth. And then when Rodney preached, I sat here on the front row and I couldn't see anything, but I could feel. And what I felt stunned me. I felt alive. I felt moved. I felt hope. And in the weeks since that day, so many of you have come to me and said, well, what's next? I've heard you say that on those Sundays, you sat there feeling hope. You felt uplifted. You felt a new energy. And you keep asking me, is there a next step? Pastor Rodney and I had lunch after those two joint worship services, and when we sat down at the table, it was a radically different conversation than the one we had five years ago. This time, we shared not only our hopes and our dreams for our own congregations, we shared our hopes and our dreams for Kansas City and for the United States of America. And both of us agreed that we do not know what is next, but we are absolutely certain that the Spirit of God that was born in Bethlehem is conceiving something in us right now. My only fear is that I might not listen because it might be a holy disruption. <laughs>